episode 462 of the Cyber Law Podcast. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views not shared by our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, or our pets. Joining me for the news roundup, we've got Kurt Sanger, former Deputy General Counsel of Cyber Command, and currently a board member and advisor for Cowbell Cyber Insurance and Safe. Corporation. Nick Weaver, a researcher at ICSI, the chief mad scientist at Scary Technologies, and a lecturer at UC Davis. He's also, and this is crucial, on the academic job market. So if you're interested in hiring somebody to teach people about technology, he's the guy to be talking to. And then Dave Chris. Founder of Culper Partners, former Assistant Attorney General for the National Security Division at the Department of Justice. So we're going to jump right in. Nick, I knew you'd want to be on this week <laughs> because it was the cryptopocalypse. Uh, the <laughs> SEC is just coming for everybody. Yes. So what has happened is, truth be told, to run a cryptocurrency exchange that does pretty much anything more than Bitcoin and Ethereum, you're committing crops. The question is, are you committing process crimes or are you committing big boy crimes? Now, for the longest time, the SEC took a very hands-off approach that they'd say this stuff was process crimes and you shouldn't be doing this. And Gensler has a speech out from the other day that basically goes through, among other things, all the warnings about regulatory clarity and the Howey test and everything else that the major exchanges just ignored. His view is nobody has a legal exchange for cryptocurrency, no. and yet everybody's got one, right? No, it's that if you are a cryptocurrency exchange, you have to actually follow the securities laws. So there's no indication that the SEC is going to go after Robinhood, for example. Because Robinhood mm -hmm. is very careful about making sure that what they list does not go waving the red flag of this is Pat violating the Howey test. And right. the SEC in their court filings went after both Binance and Coinbase. Now, the Coinbase one is you guys are doing process crimes. These are all cases that clearly tick the Howey test, and they went with a list of a dozen plus major cryptocurrencies, and therefore they're securities, therefore you have to register, you can't be the same broker-dealer clearinghouse, there's all this separation of roles, and there's all these process protections that basically make sure that if something goes wrong, consumers are protected. And I think Coinbase would kind of admit that they, they didn't meet those tests. Yes. Uh, but uh, and their their defense is kind of we can't really run a real crypto exchange following the rules that are on the books. We should be able to ask for different rules that are more accommodating of the special nature of crypto. Except that there's really no special nature, that what they're doing is LARPing at being a stock market. And if you're LARPing at being a stock market, <laughs> actually be a stock market. And so, for example, there really is no indication that Robinhood's in the SEC's sites, even though they have a big cryptocurrency exchange now. However, so, does everybody understand LARPing, live action, role playing? Uh, um, <laughs> you're not wrong. They, they, they would say they're reinventing all of those things. And in many ways, Gensler agrees. They're reinventing the state of the world in 1929. 
Mm-hmm. And there's a reason for all these securities laws. And that's like one of the things in Gensler's speech that he really emphasizes is that FTX and all the other crypto failures were failures that generally don't happen if they followed the regulatory regime. And so we are looking at a world where we've had billions of dollars of losses because the participants weren't following the regulatory regime. And so that's the point of the Coinbase one. The point of the Binance suit, however, is that, oh, Binance is also adding all these big boy crimes that underneath the hood, they look like full on FTX criminality, not just process crimes. Right. FTX light, maybe. Yeah. Actually, no. Uh, FTX heavy. Um, just with a <laughs> bit more sense of taking the money you loot and not gambling it away on cryptocurrency, but instead squirrel it away who knows where. The forensics accountants are going to be very busy with finance. And the lawyers. These companies have hundreds of millions of dollars to spend on lawyers. Right. And they will spend them because this is existential for them. Right. right. And so what's going to happen is the following. These companies are going to go in the court of public opinion and go, oh my God, they're stifling innovation, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is post FTX, that doesn't fly nearly so well. Right. So what they're going to try to do is A, fight in the court and hope that the Supreme Court decides that Howie is not good law, which seems highly unlikely, but they're going to try. The other thing is delay, delay, delay until they can bribe Congress to legalize their crime. It's the classic regulatory- Congress is is looking at ideas to accommodate the special nature of crypto uh, as the industry would have. Right. The special nature being let's reinvent 1920s level stock market finance and let's see what happens. But the other thing of real note that- probably got missed by the radar of a lot of people is the Dow default judgment that the CFTC got this week. So Dow was a DAO spun off from a unlicensed, unregulated commodities exchange, one of these DeFi projects. And they sued the founders and the founders actually acquitted themselves and said, okay, you're right, we give up. But it's now this DAO. And this DAO is something that, oh, no, you can't sue it because it's this nebulous thing. It's an unincorporated association that was regarded as being well-served and an unincorporated association. So the CFTC got the default judgment. And of particular note was during this process, nobody from Dow responded but Anderson Horowitz and a few other really big names did because if a DAO is a unincorporated association, this means joint and several liability. And so all the securities lawyers out there, go look at all the DAOs that Anderson Horowitz put money in because the point of those DAOs is securities fraud, unincorporated association, <laughs> joint and several liability, securities frauds, Anderson Horowitz, Deep Pockets. Have fun, boys. Okay. So it was always a little too clever by half to say, we'll create this thing and it will run itself. And therefore nobody can be, it may be illegal, but you can't stop it. That argument is not going to fly, it looks like. And 
the FTC is in a, or the SEC is in a position to pursue this in a selective way that will cause a lot of pain and put the boot in for Dow's. Or in this case, it was the CFTC. The CFTC is in this whole regulatory fight would rather be the one to regulate crypto. But even the CFTC has its limits. And in fact, sued Binance a couple weeks ago. And their complaint against Binance focuses on a whole bunch of different criming involving money laundering laws. And so truth be told, CZ, the founder guy in charge of Binance, I believe he's in Dubai someplace. He is never going to take a flight where they change planes where the U.S. Marshals can say hi. All right. Well, that's not the end of uh, Andreessen Horowitz because... First, we're not talking about artificial intelligence at the top of the show, and we've only got a couple of little stories, although they're really interesting ones. Mark Andreessen uh, of Andreessen Horowitz has written his explanation for why AI shouldn't be regulated and instead should just be embraced. It might not be completely different from his approach to cryptocurrency, but he basically says AI is just the next step in computers getting even better and having computers get better has always been on the whole a good thing. And that the people who are regulating this stuff are either Baptists or they're bootleggers. They're either true believers with moral principles or they're grifters who are trying to make something out of regulating AI, either they're going to slow it down or create a regulatory structure that they can benefit from because they can hire the lobbyists, or they are trying to create jobs for ethicists who will then have to be hired every time you come up with a new model. And it goes on like that. I thought it was persuasive in many ways. There clearly are grifters in AI safety, and maybe AI doomers are a cult. The idea we should regulate it because it's a threat to jobs is nutty. When he says, well, yes, bad people will do bad things with AI, but that's okay. We'll use AI to, to prevent that. I think that's crazy. That it, it is simply not capable of undoing the harms that it can do. But he's right that China is hoping we'll screw this up by creating all these regulatory knots. So worth reading. Obviously self-interested, just as their enthusiasm for cryptocurrency is, but still worth reading. But my favorite AI regulatory topic of the last three months is a little story in which Japan announces how it's going to deal with the copyright issue with AI training. And it's going to deal with it by saying, nope, sorry, not a problem. We are not going to enforce copyright on people who want to use material to train their AI. And this strikes me as brilliant from Japan's point of view, because when they say that, they are telling people, if you come here and build your database and do your training in Japan with Japanese talent and Japanese technology, you'll never have a copyright problem. And the other people who want to figure out whether there's some copyright problem are going to have to come here and use Japanese law to attack you, and that's not going to be favorable. So they've done a GDPR on the world over copyright in a way that I, you know, I resonate to it because I think the whole copyright complaint about AI is just nuts. But I think they've put it on a box and turn that box into their own industrial policy for AI. So enthusiastic endorsement on my side. All right. 
Kurt, NATO is telling us that military cyber defenders have to be present on networks during peacetime. And that could be a big deal, or it could just be, you know, the usual over-dramatized military speak, where they, they have to make everything sound like a big deal when it turns out to be something quite mundane. So can you tell us what, what NATO is talking about when it says cyber defenders uh, from the military have to be on our networks in peacetime? Sure. So this was from a speech given at NATO's SICON conference hosted in Tallinn, Estonia last week by the CCDCOE or the Cooperative Cyber Defense And you were there for that. Were you there for this speech? I was there for it. And uh, of course, the entire conference was heavily influenced by events happening in Ukraine. Ukrainian officials were there in force and several of their leaders and scholars led some of the sessions. So I think much of what happened, even if if it was not focused on Ukraine, were lessons learned coming out of Ukraine. And I think this is certainly one of them. So the headline raises a larger issue of public-private partnership and what the government's authority is on private networks. This is going to be different from NATO nation to NATO nation. So every member may have a different way by virtue of the laws and traditions that their governments follow with regard to their relationships with the private sector. The U.S., of course, though, has a, a law and tradition which doesn't allow the federal government or the military to get onto private networks absent something extraordinary, such as a warrant or an intelligence investigation. So generally, uh, our federal departments and agencies that have law enforcement responsibilities or offensive cyber responsibilities where information from these networks would be important or have a responsibility with regard to the recuperation from an event, they're probably not going to know things about these systems until there is a crisis. Every military would like to know what the terrain they're fighting on is like well before the crisis occurs, well before they have to fight there. And the U.S. law and traditions just don't support it because the U.S. government does not have access to those systems absent permission and private sector entities generally are not rushing to provide views to their systems. So does this mean that NATO is going down a road in which other parts, other members of NATO are going to take the lead over the U.S. in finding ways to work with industry that the U.S. military just is going to have too difficult a time doing? I think in Europe, with the multi-state organizations, global organizations that they have, they're going to have a lot of the same complicated problems that the U.S. would have in dealing with their countries. I mean, some countries... Their attitudes with regard to their militaries might allow for a better civil public sector cooperation. I know, for example, not a NATO nation, but Israel, because so many of their professionals have been in the military, their private sector and public sector work together uh, much better. There's a greater trust there. I think they're, I'm speculating a bit here, but for most NATO nations, I think their suspicions about what the governments are doing with the information on their systems, they're just as skeptical as the United States would be. So I think it's going to be hard to get that view absent some authority that is different in those other NATO so members. So what was the point of the speech? Is that is it a wish list or is it just pointing out that NATO is going to be operating at something of a disadvantage compared to, to, to Russia when it tries to defend? Yeah, well, I, I think it's, again, driven by 
events in Ukraine and lessons learned. And I think it would have been better if the NATO nations participating in the cyber defense of Ukraine had a better idea of what those systems look like. The United States and Cyber Command, of course, had some glimpse into those systems by virtue of their defend forward and hunt forward. But other nations that are now participating probably mm-hmm. did not. So I think that, you know, there's a, a siren saying if we're going to have to defend these systems at some point, we'd like to take a look at them in advance. Uh, whether there's going to be an appetite for that before the barbarians are at the gate is probably going to yeah. be hard to find. Yeah, who knows? Maybe, maybe some places. You're right. Uh, Poland, I could imagine. Okay. Well, this is the 462nd episode in which we've talked about public-private collaboration. <laughs> and David is going to add to our pain by talking about the Cyber Solarium Commission's 2.0 report, which spends a lot of time on public-private collaboration. Yeah, I'm always here to add to your pain. So maybe to begin, for those who aren't uh, already neck deep in it, what is the Cyberspace Solarium Commission before we get to version 2.0? Version 1.0 is that this commission was created by the Defense Authorization Act for 2019, and it had very serious people from Congress, like uh, Jim Langevin and also from outside, like Chris Inglis. And it issued a big report in March of 2020, I think, with a lot of recommendations, uh, including a recommendation that led to the creation of the Office of the National Cyber Director in the White House, uh, of which Chris Inglis became the first leader. Um, He's since left and been uh, followed by Kemba Walden, his former deputy. And so now we have Cyberspace Solarium Commission version 2.0, uh, with a new report, as you're saying, Stuart, focused on this public-private partnerships so or the lack thereof. And I mean, nobody really thinks public-private partnerships in this country are in good shape or are all that they could be. And most people also think when they do a net assessment against, say, China, uh, that totalitarian regimes have a real advantage in doing whole-of-nation <laughs> activities, right? And so, yep. query, can we improve voluntary cooperation within the fundamental framework of our system so that we can better, you know, compete with regimes that don't have these, you know, freedom-based problems? And the report, I think, to its credit, recognizes the Biden administration has been very active in the space of cyberspace. There's just a huge amount of activity and energy, but it's not enough, according to this report. The report doesn't, I don't think, say as explicitly as it might that there's also an enormous amount of tension within the Biden administration's leadership to include between Chris and Ann Newberger at the NSC and Jen Easterly over at DHS CISA. And it's really interesting to sort of think back on how each of those three former NSAers now running cyber activity, or Chris's case, formerly running it, dealt with the issue of public-private partnerships. Jen, who I've interviewed in a podcast, not this one, I apologize. She's clearly very, very substantive, but her approach was to put a tweet out saying, we shouldn't call it public-private partnership, we ought to call it operational collaboration. Chris wrote a thought piece in Foreign Affairs on the new social compact that has to underlie that. And Anne worked with the New York Times to highlight particular stories of partnerships and collaboration, and particularly in the context of Ukraine. So, you know, there's a lot of energy, there's a lot of pushing of the concept of doing and improving partnerships with each of the senior leaders, maybe doing it differently. Let me stop you there just for a 
quick inside baseball yeah. assessment. Of the three, who would you say is most likely to say the best way to get public-private collaboration is for the government to have a stick in the closet? <laughs> I'm going to say – I'm going to say Chris, although I don't think he was an enthusiast yeah. for it, he believed that regulation had to happen. But I don't know where Ann is in particular on that. I think that broadly speaking, Chris and Jen, uh, Jen Easterly over at DHS, were pretty well aligned on this. And it came out even as early as in their confirmation hearings where, you know, I remember Chris saying, look, we want to you know, encourage it, we want to incentivize it, we want to appeal to people to do it. And yeah, at the end of the day, if none of those things work, then yes, we probably will have to regulate. And I think Jen may share that view. And indeed, CISA has been enjoying some legislative support to put some of its regulatory authorities on stronger statutory footing, both to put them on statutory footing, that is, and to potentially enhance and expand them. And this report from cybersecurity, you know, Solarium Commission, I think, is broadly generally supportive of enhancing CISA's authorities. And they're not the only one. The NSTAC was recommending that CISA be the deconfliction agent for all of the many cyber incident reporting rules that have popped up in one agency or another under extant and organic authorities, you know, you now have a little bit of a patchwork of incident reporting obligations and the National Security Telecommunications Advisory Committee, I think it's the full name, you know, recommended somebody needs to deconflict right. that and it ought to be, it ought to be CISA. Whether CISA has stepped up and done it, I don't know. I'm not sure they've got the, I don't think they have the clout to do it without yeah. more and, support from, in, from the- And the, the report is, is actually pretty good in saying, listen, somebody needs to clarify responsibilities and lanes and rules in the road. One like really notable example I continue to scratch my head about is I have not seen, possibly I missed it, but I don't think so, any kind of presidential directive like an executive order or even a national security memo really laying down the roles and responsibilities as between ONCD, the entity that Chris Inglis used to head, and NSC Cyber that Ann Neuberger heads. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> no, you're, you're not likely to in the well, so, <laughs> But that's, in a way, weird, right? Like, these two entities exist. Yeah. You know, everybody's touting unity of effort, and, and I suppose the theory is we have twice as much unity when we have two. Uh, this is a joke I just can't resist telling in almost any setting, right? But, know. you know, like, one would expect some kind of clarification of roles, and the report sort of is pointing out a number of areas in which authorities and areas of responsibility could be, you know, clarified and enhanced. I think one other aspect, and then I'll shut up because I know I've been rambling, but the market is also shifting. I mean, I think Jen may be right that operational collaboration, and particularly riffing off what Kurt was talking about moments ago, may be the better framework for thinking about it. The question is, what are going to be the economics of operational collaboration, because I think increasingly the private sector providers believe that threat intelligence is extremely valuable and is worth paying for by their private sector clients, and maybe the government's going to have to pay too, outside of the context of an acute emergency. So I think a big question, for me at least, apart from the regulatory clarity and the regulatory enhancement that I think 
the report rightly points out. What are going to be the economics of this? How are we going to work that out? That makes a lot of sense. And of course, they're quite happy to get a lot of information from the government that confirms their private in- yes. threat intel. Uh, so it's kind of uh, your sharing, I'm selling. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that's maybe as you do a net assessment against of the United States against you know China and totalitarian adversaries, maybe that's our secret sauce. <laughs> Capitalism. I love the term operational collaboration, but it means something much different than what the public-private relationship is right now. It means doing things yeah. together not just sharing information. Well, and there's some of that for sure, right? I mean, the companies that basically moved most of Ukraine's infrastructure to the cloud are continuing to work with them on protecting that and to work with the other folks who are protecting it, I assume. There's no doubt there's been some operational collaboration on some types of operations between law enforcement military and the private sector that have been successful doing that among more than just the most empowered private sector organizations. I'd like to see how that's going to work. But I think my bigger concern is growing the trust necessary to have true operational collaboration with the same organizations that you're trying to regulate, some of whom may be penalized for failing to live up to their regulatory responsibilities. And I am hoping that there is a way to develop those relationships, but I see it being a difficult Yeah, so I, I, I think this is something CISA has been particularly uneasy about. They really don't want to get regulatory authority if they can avoid it. They like to have the stick in the stick closet. Stick in the closet. It to be That's some great. other agency's <laughs> stick. And they would like to be the people that companies come to to talk about the problem that they're facing. They'll let the SEC bring the hammer down on them. Maybe that will work. The problem with the SEC is that they don't want to they don't want to coordinate at all. They'll tell you how independent they are by law and constitution, and therefore they don't have to take any coordination from anybody. So it will be a major problem as cyber becomes more important. More agencies have decided they want to run cyber for their industry, and they don't want a lot of help hmm. doing it. So the CSC is right to to flag that issue. I don't know that their solutions will actually come to pass. The SEC may not want to coordinate, but they need to know what the consequences of failure to coordinate are and take responsibility for failure to coordinate when those consequences arise because of their failure to coordinate. Well, we'll <laughs> <see>. uh, <laughs> okay, Kurt, there was a story about a Cloudflare study that said that Russia had been kind of coordinating its DDoS attacks on emergency services with its bombings of civilian infrastructure, or at least Ukrainian infrastructure, leading to the implication that basically they were trying to bomb places, cause civilian casualties, and then prevent the ambulances and the fire trucks from getting there. I'm not quite sure that the study says that, but I, it does seem to me that's the first time where you could say, okay, now it sounds like we've got a regular old war crime using cyber. It does, and it raises issues of state responsibility, due diligence, whether the act is justifiable as a matter of military necessity. But first, it's one of attribution. Is it being done by organs or agents of the Russian state, or is it being done by disorganized army of hackers that supports the Russian cause? So we don't know. I don't think the article or anyone has yet establish the facts of who is actually doing this. So there are a lot of any factual blanks 
left to be filled in. But it appears that the acts are designed to affect civilians specifically and the types of services that civilians would need most in a time of an emergency. So we are moving much closer to a war crime emanating from a cyberspace operation than we have before. But filling in those factual blanks first is essential before we move to that so I guess, you know, since I am not a big enthusiast for international law, including the international law of war, I can't help pointing out how weird it is that we would say, oh, yeah, shooting missiles and artillery into civilian buildings, yeah, that's not a war crime, that's just war. But preventing the fire truck from showing up later is a war crime. It doesn't align very well with one's sense of what's immoral. Yeah, it's just an additional avenue of investigation, which I know uh, Lindsay Freeman out of Berkeley, she was at SciCon, the same conference we were just talking about earlier, uh, talking about these very issues, and she submitted some things to the ICC uh, recommending charges for acts done in cyberspace that could be war crimes. So it's just a matter of assigning responsibility to cyber operators in addition to those more traditional sources of the types of attacks that would lead to war crimes. So it's been a while since we've done some really discussion of particular hacks that are underway. But Nick, there's a couple that I thought cleared the bar for needing to be talked about. One of them is the Barracuda hack, and the other is the Move It Transfer hack. What's going on with Barracuda? Basically, Barracuda said, yeah, we are so totally pwned mm-hmm. that you should just throw away the stuff we sent you? Yes. So what the device is in question is an email gateway filter. So the goal is a security device that you put in your incoming mail stream, and it cleans out the email of attacks and the Somebody, we don't know who, has for months been compromising these boxes and using them to exfiltrate information. This is almost certainly a nation-state adversary. Just because it's so hard. Not because it's so hard, but because of what they are doing, that they are Uh, coming up with a zero day. They're using this for intelligence purposes, not ransom purposes. Unlike, say, the movie yes. transfer bug. Yes. Yeah. And it's somehow so embedded that if you're pwned, Barracuda does not trust you to be able to recover, presumably even with a USB and boot it up cleanly, which suggests they're worried about firmware implants. Yep. And the attackers. Actually, I, I, I have a new theory on this. What they're really worried about is hardware. They don't think the future is selling hardware. They think the future is selling virtual appliances, and they want to move in everybody to virtual appliances where they don't have to worry about not being able to reach the firmware. I noticed that they said, if you have this problem, throw out your device and call us about getting a virtual or a hardware appliance, which to my mind suggests that this is in part a way to clean out inventory of customers that are more of a pain in the neck than- I uh, think there uh, may be the, let's put them onto the virtual subscription model, but that's secondary to the, it looks like they they were a target of nation state spying and oh, And you can't use their cloud service if the NSA is your adversary because 702. But you could theoretically use an appliance. True enough. So this is some adversary, does really know what they're doing, 
really going for persistence and not actually using this to pivot into internal infrastructure. This is clearly a SIGINT collection play. It's almost high confidence says this is some spy agency. Could actually even be the NSA because a significant portion of it was written in Lua, which is something the NSA has a habit of using. And people who want to make people think the NSA is responsible have a habit of using now too. So you really have no clue who did it. Okay. But if it was the NSA, it would be a violation of law and this would be a No one is. I think if you're going to use 702, you just go to the the manufacturer and you tell them we're using it. But compromising hardware boxes, as long as all the boxes were compromised, outside the U.S., ah, fair EO12333, and right okay. in their bailiwick and their bloody job. So Yeah, okay, fair enough. Uh, you're right. I didn't see an indication that that was the pattern of compromise. Uh, we haven't right. actually seen any real publication about the pattern of compromise, who's been compromised. Um, and that okay. would tell yeah. probably a lot about the actor responsible. Let's talk about the move it transfer compromise. It, in some ways, it's quite similar in the sense that this is a zero day exploit that the move it transfer is having trouble cleaning up, but it's being used very differently. Yes. So move it is a secure file transfer appliance. So you have to send attachments to colleagues or what vendors or whatever, and you don't want to send it an email, so you use one of these appliances. And you don't want to put it up on some service that has the right to look at it. Yeah. And these vendors, move it's just the latest, are really attractive targets for a smash and grab ransomware approach. So you... As a ransomware purveyor, you get one of these appliances, you find a zero day, you go to town. So when you find a zero day, you basically attack everybody you can, steal as much data as possible and say, oh, give me X millions of dollars or your data gets published. And well, if you hit 100 institutions... 10 of them pay for a $50 million net payday, that's going to be so worth it. And so move it's just the latest incarnation of this. And this, it's the Klopp gang, I guess. Yep. And I, I did like it. They apparently sent messages to all the people who've been using Move It Transfer saying, we're actually too busy downloading all your data to <laughs> encrypt your system or even to send you a ransom note. So, so just let us know you surrender and we'll send you a bill later. Yeah, yeah. The other thing of note is the vulnerability in question. The vulnerability in question is what's known as SQL injection. So this is the little Bobby Tables attack. Now, SQL injection is one of the top vulnerabilities of all time. It's horribly persistent. The thing is, is it's really easy to find and remediate that basically you just look through every bit in your code base for all the invocations of raw SQL replace it with prepared statements, and you never have to worry again. So why did Move It Transfer say to people, the way to fix this is just to shut down all your transfers? <laughs> That's not exactly patching. Right, because, well, there once a box is compromised, it's actually really hard ah. to recover. That okay. the proper way to respond to a compromised system is the alien's approach. 
dust off and nuke the site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. All right. Kurt, you mentioned, uh, we, we actually, we talked about Section 702, I guess, and Nick and I did. The White House has been pushing pretty hard for renewal of 702 because it's coming to the end of its life at the end of the year. And CyberScoop did a story that was kind of skeptical. It said, well, the White House says it's really critical for cybersecurity, but they didn't give us a lot of details about that. That's the objection that I've heard. I've written on this with Rick Salgado saying, you know, we can have, we have a pretty good idea how 702 works for cybersecurity. You've seen, I'm not asking for anything classified, but you've actually seen 702 information, I assume, in the context of trying to defend networks. Do you buy the statement that it's really valuable for cybersecurity? So without giving a definitive answer on that, I'll say at least that the intelligence community appears to have convinced the White House that it needs 702, and now it needs to convince Congress. I'm not sure who's left in Congress that's available to be convinced, but assuming there are some, you know, 702 is an extraordinary tool. And asking for extraordinary demonstrations of proof, it's at least foreseeable, if not justifiable. So I know I'm not the interlocutor here, but since there are several experts and interested parties on the call, uh, wanted to ask each of you what you thought, what might be the type of proof that would be uh, enough to convince Congress to continue 702? Is it a demonstration made to the Gang of Eight? Does something more broad need to be brought to a broader part of Congress? Or who else or how else is there a way to make a demonstration or make the case if you're the intelligence community? Or so the I, I've written on this, but I'll let David weigh in on that. Well... Yeah, I mean, I think in the past when, you know, this authority was conceived, it's broad by its terms, but obviously the focus was international terrorism uh, and the political oomph behind it was international terrorism. And that was true even for the some of the renewals that occurred on five-year intervals after 2008. And they did lean in pretty hard to making public those kinds of stories. I think today, to answer Kurt's question, my sense is you have got to make the case broadly and beyond the gang of eight. We are long past the era of, you know, proxy oversight by elites, either in the gang of eight or even on the intelligence committees. You know, now everybody is doing national security oversight and particularly with respect to surveillance authorities. And so I think that's on the administration to make as broad and as wide a showing as they can. It's obviously the wider and broader you disclose, the more difficult it may be to do so. But I think they cannot, uh, and I don't think the administration believes that it could, revert to you know just persuading the intelligence committees, the Gang of Eight, or even the those people plus the Maryland and Virginia uh, representatives and senators. I think they've got to go broader because People care and people are energized on, you know, both the left and the right, as it were, whatever you want to call the two different wings of of groups that are skeptical about this. So it's a very new dynamic. I think they've got to try to persuade everybody. Yeah. And that's, this is why the uh, most recent op-ed that I uh, wrote with Michael Ellis uh, suggesting how the people on the right should view this and how they should accommodate themselves to 702 while at the same time reforming some of the things they don't like about the intelligence community. I didn't, as I often do, send it to lawfare. 
I sent it to the, <laughs> the Washington Examiner because I thought that was more likely to be the, the outlet Your that audience. my target audience was reading. <laughs> and I think they are. I think there's a real possibility. I think we will see 702 renewed. I think the FBI's ability to access 702 data is that at serious risk, but yeah. that's different from not getting 702 renewed. Uh, Stuart, can I just say, and much as it pains me to say anything positive about you, <laughs> I would like to just say that I do think this examiner piece you did is really helpful because, you know, this is my take on it anyway. The sort of traditional civil liberties left groups have been fighting 702 and seeking reform for a number of years. And they have pretty well-developed, well-articulated, and reasonably clear policy prescriptions. They don't obviously speak entirely with one voice, but there are a number of very specific, actionable prescriptions out there. I understand exactly or pretty well what they want. You know, whether or not one agrees with it is another story. I think the other group, the sort of right right side, right wing group uh, that you're talking about representing, really has had less clarity in articulating the policy prescriptions specifically that follow from the concerns that they have. And so I think you're really doing a public service, Stuart, by putting some particulars and specific prescriptions, some actionable things that one could legislate to give voice to those concerns. It's just a necessary step to having a serious debate where at the end of the day, they either have to amend the statute or not and either reauthorize it or not. So again, it, it goes against everything I believe in to say something you know, in praise of you, but I'm going to have to do it here because I do think you're really doing a public service. So the close listeners of the podcast know that if you wait till the very end after the music ends, Mark Chernozik plucks five or six words from the podcast that are most likely to make fun of me usually. Um, <laughs> and, but I think this time it's possible that you're really performing a public service steward will survive. <laughs> the, the, the test. Oh my God. I'll stand by those words, but they hurt. They hurt. Uh, yeah, uh, Lordy, thank God there are tapes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, yep. Stuart, so with 702, with FBI not having, uh, access, you're saying that the possibility is that the intelligence community will have access to the information, Maybe. but the law yeah, enforcement that, will not? Everybody who says, well, the FBI should not get access or should only get access in certain ways, no one says, well, what does that mean for other agencies that need this intelligence too. But I think it's a disaster because the other agencies that have access to this are intelligence agencies who have learned through bitter experience that the only way you're going to get in trouble is looking at information about Americans. And so they just don't want to do it. They don't want to be near it. It's like plutonium in their desk drawer. And so only the FBI usually has the confidence to say, well, that's what we're here for. So I do worry that if we say the FBI can't look at this stuff, what we're really saying is that nobody in the U.S. government can look at it. And that's exactly where we were on September 10 of 2001. It's setting us up for a disaster. Yeah, I want to say I read a book touching on those themes a while ago, skating yeah, on okay. something. Could, could be a sequel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, skating on higher stilts. Uh, okay, two quick stories. Nick, uh, I thought of you when I noticed that the Washington Post was doing a deep dive on what it calls the shocking toll of Tesla's autopilot. 17 fatalities, 736 crashes, way beyond any other company's self-driving car 
cars, it really did sound kind of bad. Like they had rolled out full self-driving and were just determined to sell it on the theory that, well, there are a lot of other people who didn't die because the autopilot was a more careful driver than some drunk who might have gotten in the car, which I just don't think is selling. Right. Because the problem is how Tesla's doing autopilot is flawed in a gazillion ways. So... First of all, they're doing it very machine learning first approach, being trained on a glob of training data that's Tesla drivers. So mistake mm-hmm. number one, let's learn how to drive by watching how people drive Teslas. <laughs> Audis would be worse, but not by much. The other thing is that there's a huge economic motivation behind this because Elon Musk doesn't want to go to jail and wants lots of money. Full self-driving, as Tesla has conceived it, will never work. And you ask any independent third-party expert, and they'll go with the whole litany of the wrong sensor approach, the wrong semantic approach, the driver attention well, he problem. did. He, he pretty much had to do everything first, and that is part of the problem. It is, we're now seeing that some of those things just don't get the last 2% done. Right. But it's not just that. It's that Tesla's run on hype. Elon Musk has been hyping this in knowingly false ways for years now, including doctored videos from the very start. And now Musk needs two things to happen. He needs Tesla's stock to not ever crater because he would get the Trevor Milton treatment because I cannot distinguish Trevor Milton's downhill truck from Musk's autopilot claims. And he better hope Trump doesn't get elected because since Musk went all in on meatball Ron, you can bet that a Trump DOJ would prosecute Musk under the Trevor Milton treatment anyway. Yeah, who knows if Trump pays enough attention to his list of enemies to actually pursue them. But but we'll see. He'd have a very different set of loyalists in if he got elected and they'd be much more eager to, to follow his enemies list. All right. Last point, public service announcement and an update uh, for people who thought that Louisiana and Utah's effort to control access to adult materials by requiring everybody to have a porn passport, if you thought that was just a few very religious states, I've got news for you. Virginia has passed a law that more or less says the same thing. You have to have a license. You have to demonstrate by sending to the porn service your personal ID that shows your age if you want to get access to adult materials. And Pornhub is campaigning against this in a singularly unsuccessful way. They apparently put a a warning on their page saying, you better contact Virginia and tell them you don't support this bill after the bill had already been passed and probably after it had been signed. So it will go into effect in July. And my guess is this opens the door to 20 states adopting a a law like this. And it is kind of remarkable that it's taken this long for the states to get around to doing it. It just shows how the kind of gauze of all good things come from the internet has finally worn off. And people said, yeah, why don't we just do this? Who's going to stop us? So that's the most effective measure of just how far Silicon Valley has fallen in public esteem. Kurt, David, Nick, thank you for joining us. This has been episode 462 of the Cyber Law Podcast. If you can't get enough of this and you want to hear more, especially 
EU bashing. I'll be doing some of that this Thursday, June 15 at 11 a.m. on a Federal Society Regulatory Transparency Project teleforum with Max Schrems as my debating partner. He has not often gone out to have his ideas stress tested, but I hope that it will be a civil, but a very pointed uh, debate. So that should be fun. If I can, I'll do it as a podcast here as a bonus episode. But uh, if that doesn't happen, the best way to hear it is live Thursday, June 15 at 11 a.m. And if you know somebody who wants to do the sound editing on this and have leeway to select the most Stuart Baker and embarrassing snippets and play them at the end. We are looking to hire somebody to replace Mark Chernozik and it can't happen soon enough. So send me a CV or a bio at cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you just want to leave us feedback, uh, we love to read reviews and we'll read them on the air. Again, this has been episode 462 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. Because I do think you're really doing a public service, Stuart. So, LARP, does everybody understand LARPing, live action, role playing? Uh, um, 